I was kind of late to enjoy reading. And I like to say it because I think that people can find a joy in reading at any point in life. Maybe it doesn't come for you until retirement. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Keep It Fictional. Today, we have chosen a very ambitious topic. We are going to be talking about our to-be-read lists. And we have all chosen a book that has been on our to-be-read list for a very long time. I liked the idea of this because it meant I would get to something that I've been meaning to get to forever and it would feel so good. Well, it sort of just meant that I had to like dredge up something way from the past, something older and get it done really quickly uh, and ended up being a bit of a chore, but maybe I'm better for it. So uh, I've got my book friends here today, and we have all chosen a book uh, on our to-be-read list, so they're probably a bit older, and I just wanted to have a little chat. How long are your to-be-read lists? What kind of stuff is on there? What was it like going back to it? It wasn't great. (laughs) Um, Yeah, my to-be-read list on Goodreads, which I honestly don't update that much now. I used to a while ago, and now I don't. I just kind of like let the books come to me as they will. Currently, my to-be-read list is 1,904 books long, Um, and it's like going through an archaeology of who I was back then, of like, oh, I was really into like YA fantasy then, or oh, I was really into fairy tale retellings or literary fiction, like I can, or cookbooks, (laughs) never could read a cookbook. Um, but it was like going, it was like a, a stratification of who I was at a particular time. So that was very interesting. So it was, it was interesting to, to go through that. And, and I just went all the way to the bottom and chose the one that was the oldest that I was actually going to read. Now, we know Virginia uh, has a different system of keeping track of her TBR. So I'm interested to hear how this went for you. I actually haven't really started keep I, I don't really keep track of a tb i don't really have one I sh- i'm gonna say you know like i do have like it was only until very recently that i started keeping track of what i read and what i want to read and all that um and so i can't I, I was more for this episode i had to like look on my bookshelves i'm like okay what is a book that i feel like i bought like really really long time ago and that has the biggest amount of dust gathered on it. That's kind of how I determine what I was going to pick today. Um, but I add some of the books, like, cause I, I do, even though I work at a library, I do buy a lot of books. So I generally add my books to an online retailer. So that give it, it reminds me whenever somebody say, Hey, you know, like what, what should I buy? You know, and I can look at it. And so, yeah. And I think very much like what Corinne said, it was definitely a, a journey back into like, well, who I was as a reader, you know, like a couple of years ago or like, you know, like even longer than that. And, and I generally, it's like, well, okay, well, if somebody, if I read about a book online or if I like hear about something, like I'll add that to it. And so it was a lot of like 
independent like published horror titles on mine um a lot of fantasy like that because i was just like those are the ones that i don't nec- i don't necessarily like remember but so i wanted to like keep track of those but in terms of other books it's kind of like okay well i kind of know what i want to read so i don't really bother to put it on there but it's like the weird ones that i hear about that i don't think i will ever come across again that i want to put on my list so that's how my list usually is but yeah definitely was interesting to see who i was and i think i was saying to corinne earlier i'm like if it is a book that i haven't read for 10 years do i really need you in my life <laughs> i don't know so yeah i found going back way back was a bit anxiety inducing kind of going why did i put that on my list why is it here? What do I do with it now? Like, I, I feel like I need to go back and do a purge. I've got, like, Corian's number just blows me away because I've got 499 right now. It would have been 500, but I've read one of the books for today's episode. <laughs> so, you know, based on the amount of time it's taken me to read the one book, I mean, that's, this is not going to happen. Um, so I feel like I need to go and do a bit of a purge in the TBR stop putting books that there that people recommend to me. Sorry, Deep Dark Secret. Stop putting books there that people recommend to me. And I feel obligated to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll put that on my list. It's like, oh, we'll, we'll do coffee sometime. Yeah, yeah, we'll do coffee sometime, but we're not making a date. It's like, yeah, I'll read that. So that sounds great. And then I don't actually, re- I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but it's the truth. The truth will set us all free, right? So um, I think I'm going to have to really whittle that down just for just for my own personal happiness yeah that was a trip um how about you fiona okay so my list is at uh 1628 and i go back and forth like of like oh my gosh that's so stressful and then also like i have my whole life and there's so many good books in the world and isn't that wonderful um (laughs) And I'm kind of TBR crazy. Uh, Every episode, pretty much, that we have, I put things that you talk about on my TBR. I just, sometimes I'll do this thing where I'll just go and put a bunch of things on hold that are on my TBR, like not really thinking about it. And then it's just like a nice surprise for myself. Uh, Although I I rarely actually get to them. (laughs) And when I looked back at the very beginning, which for me is 2017, I know I harp on this a lot, but I was kind of late to enjoy reading. And I like to say it because I think that people can find a joy in reading at any point in life. Maybe it doesn't come for you until retirement or like post school when you actually get to read what you want. But it was kind of like an explosion for me of like, oh, I'm going to put all those things that I've always wanted to read and I've never taken the time to. So there's a lot of classics on there a lot of like feminists, like Judith Butler, that kind of thing. And then also a lot of indigenous uh, literature, which is which I what I ended up going with for today. So it was interesting, but maybe like a little more digging than we're like used to doing for this. A lot of like self-reflection. Hopefully we have an easy topic next time, something more chill. <laughs> um, but Liz, why don't you tell us about what you ended up picking? So the book that uh, I will be talking about today was written in 1999. Yes, such a far decade ago. Um, and it's been on my TBR since 2012. So yes, almost an entire 10 whole years. And it has survived without being purged 
for almost 10 whole years. So I feel like that maybe says something about it. This one is called Waiting by Hajin. And Hajin is a Chinese-American author. He immigrated uh, to Boston many moons ago and is a fairly prolific uh, novel writer, as well as a professor of English. Waiting takes place in 1963 in China during the Cultural Revolution. So this was an interesting look at sort of a sub uh, cross-section of um, Chinese society during just such a pivotal time in their history. The primary focus of our story is Lin Kong, and he is a doctor at a hospital in a fictional city that um, Hajin has created in this novel. And of course, he's not only a doctor, but he is also considered a comrade and an officer in the Revolutionary Army. So there are many protocols and uh, sort of rules around conduct, personal conduct in life, as well as professional conduct. Now, Lin Kong has fallen for a woman named Mana Wu, and she is a nurse at that very same hospital. She eventually becomes head nurse, and she is bright and clever and vivacious and intelligent. Uh, they have wonderful conversations, but they can never leave the compound of the hospital together. If they are seen outside of the compound, that is incredibly scandalous. That could lead to, you know, definitely a lot of uh, punishment within the ranks. So their relationship is very chaste, many walks around the grounds, having lunch in the cafeteria together, and it becomes commonly known to everybody that they are an item. There is a complication, however, and that is that in Ling Kong's home village, he has a wife named Shu Yu, as well as a daughter. His marriage to his wife was not one of love, but rather one arranged by his family out of what they felt was necessity. They were looking to uh, secure their care in old age. So they made what they felt would be a good match for Lin Kong and overall for the family. So while Lin Kong has been working in the city as a doctor, only to return once a year in the summertime to his family homestead, Xu Yu has been diligently first nursing his mother through illness, then taking care of his father until death, and had since bore Lin Kong a child and was taking care of her as well as the family farm, crops, animals. Now, Lin Kong is a man of duty, as he must be in the Revolutionary Army. And so he knows that he must tread very, very carefully balancing this relationship with Mana, which has become very public, as well as balancing his actual marriage and uh, his duty as a husband. Now, divorce is not out of the question. And Mana compels him on each visit home in the summer to divorce his wife, bring it up, take her to the court, divorce her. And every year, Shuyu agrees, and then they get to court. They are before the magistrate, and she breaks down and says she still loves him. And Ling Kong is berated as a terrible comrade, a terrible man of the revolution. Get out of, get out of court. You need to take care of your family and your wife. So every year he returns to the city and to the hospital 
having to face Mana to say, no, we did not get the divorce. And yet every year, Mana remains with him. In a time when age of being single, not married, can be a stigma, every year Mana feels this societal pressure. Does she stay with Lin Kong or does she cut ties with him and move on with her life? And yet the two cannot separate. For over 17 years, the two remain in this holding pattern of waiting. Now, it is on the 18th year. This is a very old rule within the Revolutionary Army. In the 18th year, if it can be proven that a husband and wife are no longer a viable couple, then they can be granted the divorce. And the 18th year has come up finally for Lin Kong and Shu Yu. So after 18 years, 18 years of Shu Yu's pleading and Mana's waiting and Lin Kong's indecision or distress of Shu Yu's brother attempting to throw a wrench in Lin Kong's plans, after 18 years, perhaps finally that waiting will end. However, at this point, Lin Kong is not the same person. Mana Wu is not the same person. They are older. They are tired. They have had a chaste relationship this entire time. Are, are they really in love? Was this waiting all for nothing? So despite this being a really old book on my TBR and my lament about the older books on that list for me and wondering why the heck did I put them on my list is... Why are they? Why am I keeping them there? Will the, these books be worth it? I, I felt I felt that this one this one was worthwhile. But it's not often that I read books set in this time and place, and I felt that you know this was a rather sensitive and insightful look into how politics could affect everyday people uh, in that particular world. So again, if you're interested, this is Waiting by Ha Jin. Guess where that book is going, Liz? On my TVR! <laughs> That's almost like somehow upsetting that it like it finally got off yours and now it's online. All right, Virginia, let us know what you brought. Pretty sure this one is not going to go on your TBR, but that's okay. Um, so I chose this book mainly kind of as, as a bit of a tribute to the author that sort of started me on this reading journey into the fantasy world. I remember like, probably, I don't know, like 10, 15 years ago, I uh, walk into the section, uh, the fantasy section in my library and be like, okay, what have you got for me here? I'm going to give this a try. So out of all the books that are there, I decided to pick up The Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. Something about a wizard and magic, private investigator, this mashup like really, really appeals to me and read it, really enjoyed it. And I know for the next little while, I was always hunting down books that say, if you like Harry Dresden, you would like that kind of uh, reader likes. So even though I would say urban fantasy is no longer my favorite sort of subgenre in fantasy, it was uh, what sort of started me on this journey. So I figured today I will pick something that sort of as a tribute to that. Jim Butcher is most famous for Harry Dresden, but he did have other series. And one of them is an epic fantasy series, which is right now, I would say probably my type of fantasy books. And this story also has a 
great origin story, so I just have to pick it. So the book that I have for you today is book one in the Codex Odalera series, and it is called Furies of Calderon. So the reason why Jim Butcher wrote this book was because he was at a writer's kind of workshop event, and they were talking about the craft of writing. And there are kind of two camps to this. Some people believe that you have to have a good story. That is a very important thing. You have to have a good premise and that can carry a book through. But Jim Butcher would think, well, no, if you're a good writer, you should be able to make things work. Even if it is the most ridiculous premise, you should be able to make it work. And so when people argue with him about it, he was like, fine, give me one. No, wait, give me two. Give me two ridiculous elements and premise, and I will make it work for you. So somebody suggested that he should write a book about the Roman legions and Pokemon. And so he was like, okay, I will take Roman legion and Pokemon and write a series about it. And hence the birth of the Codex Alera series. And you know, I can't pass up on a book if it is allegedly inspired by Pokemon. So this is a story that is set in a world where the, there are these furies and they're kind of like Pokemon. They have different types, fire type and water type and metal type. And humans can bond with their furies and they can do magical things. So for example, if you are a good water crafter, you can communicate, you can send messages like a long distance. You could heal people. If you are a firecrafter, you can use that to manipulate emotions. So for example, you can heighten somebody's sense of fear or you can dampen it. And there's of course other theories that are occur in the natural world that causes storms and rain and tornadoes and all that stuff. And there is a mountain called Gyarados. So that is the Pokemon reference in here. Anyway, so it is set in a world where there's these furies and our two main characters are Amara and Taffy. Amara is just about done with her training. She is training to be an agent for the first Lord, who is like the kind of like in charge of the empire. And uh, Amara is almost done, but she has one more trial to go to. And so along with her mentor, they are going on a mission. This is her final test. But it turns out that her mentor is a traitor to the empire and that he is secretly working with someone, we don't know who, but someone to overthrow the empire. And so now Amara has got caught in enemy territory. She has to find her way out, report back to the first Lord to let him know that someone is leading a rebellion and she's going to have to find out who that is. And so she has to become a spy and it will take her to these remote villages where they are pretty independent, but there's like stuff going on and she needs to find out for the first lot who is the traitor. Meanwhile, we have Taffy. Taffy is just an ordinary boy who lives in one of those villages. And he is a little different from everyone else because everybody has a fury but he doesn't. He has no ability to do fury crafting, so he has no bond with any fury. And that, of course, made him the joke of the village. One day when he was sent out to bring the sheep in, 
he got a little distracted because a pretty girl asked him, well, "Can you bring me some flowers? These flowers only grow in this remote area." So Taffy was like, "Sure, I'll do that." Instead of bringing the sheep home, he decided to go get some flowers for this girl. And on his way back, he met the Marat. Now, no one has seen the Marat for hundreds of years. The Alerans have driven the Marat out. They are considered this barbaric tribe that is that have driven out from the empire. But now it seems like they are back. And Taffy barely escaped when his uncle found him and saved him, but was deeply injured from this. And so now his uncle and Taffy had to find a way to alert the first lord that the Marat is back. So it seems like the empire has um, internal enemies and some external enemies, and they are all trying to overthrow this empire. So I would say it is a pretty textbook kind of epic fantasy story. Everything was pretty much like what you expect. Uh, it's got good pace. It's got good action. I actually listened to this on audiobook, and it is twenty four hours. Of this, so I think it's it's a good testimony to the writer and to the narrator that I was entertained for most of it. It was interesting because I feel like I I think what I what I needed more maybe from the book is some more world building because I'm kind of more used to epic fantasy that has like a really elaborate kind of world. So I was kind of missing some of that, but the story did keep moving, which is good. So yeah, so I I think if you enjoy like epic fantasy, if you sort of like a story where you have like an ordinary like seemingly powerless kid who is going to save the world, then you might enjoy Theories of Caldeon, and it's by Jim Butcher. Great, thank you for sharing that, Virginia. All right, what was Kareem ten or fifteen or however many years ago reading? <laughs> What was she doing that long ago? What was she up to? What was she thinking? This one, I can actually draw a line from like point A to point B as to why this is on my to be read list. And this one, again, like Liz, we're going back. We're going back to March of 2011. So it is over 10 years that I have been meaning to read this book. And I'm glad that I did. So the book starts in 1892, and Wang Guichang is dying. And it also takes place in 1939, where Wang Guichang is also dying. So the patriarch of the Wang family, proprietors of the Disappearing Moon Cafe on Pender Street, Chinatown, Vancouver, is saved once and cannot be saved the second time. In 1892, he has been sent by the Benevolent Association into the wilderness of what will be British Columbia to find and retrieve the bones of the Chinese workers from the railway and bring them back to Vancouver where they can be shipped back to China for a proper burial. However, he is woefully underprepared for this task. The Benevolent Association decides that he has kind of an old soul, and so he is the best suited for this task. And even though perhaps spiritually and emotionally he is prepared, he is not prepared for the winter. And he finds himself freezing to death in the middle of the wilderness. In 1892, he is saved. A young woman named Kalora 
who is uh, a First Nations woman whose father is also Chinese, happens to stumble upon him in the wilderness, likes the look of him, takes pity on him, and decides to bring him back to her father. There, the two of them start a bit of a relationship that will have repercussions for his family for generations. When we go back to 1939, uh, the Wong family is one of the richest families in Chinatown, having started with a small cafe that is mostly looked over by Wong's wife, uh, who he brought over from China, and his son and his wife, but has grown into a real estate empire, has grown into being one of the most prominent families in the entire area. However, his decisions, his choices, and one could even say his sins have repercussions and echoes in the lives of the women in his family for years. This is The Disappearing Moon Cafe by Sky Lee, first published in 1990. So like Liz, going back. We're going back. And um, Sky Lee is a feminist Chinese-Canadian writer, and you can see all of this wonderful history that she's writing, all this feminist thought that she's putting into it, all the the big issues um, that she writes in this beautifully, beautifully written story, this this family drama. It, it takes place in different times, talking about the first wife that is brought over from China and who is desperately trying to understand and find her place in a society of men who had worked on the railway and whose isolation and loneliness and trauma has kind of cut themselves off from the rest of society. It talks about his son's wife who came over with expectations of modern refrigerators and modern life and modern excitement, but is instead under her mother-in-law's thumb because of her inability to have children. It talks about Beatrice, who is our narrator's mother, who is the princess of Chinatown, who has never lifted her finger to do an ounce of work in her life. And because she has been kept so woefully ignorant, is about to make a terrible, terrible decision. And it is about Kay, who is our narrator, who is struggling with the expectations of her family to become a fancy investment banker when at the heart of things, she is a writer and she wants to delve into a family past that no one wants to talk about. This is a very well-written book. I, I've seen it described as a melodrama, which I thought was a bit insulting. It is a it's a family drama that would make like a very juicy 10-part miniseries. I feel like it could really like draw people in and I would love to, to see it adapted in that way. It was nominated for the Governor General Award, the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize, the City of Vancouver Book Award, and kind of woefully, Sky Lee really only wrote two novels and hasn't written anything in a really long time, which I think is a, is a horrible, horrible shame. The the through line of the reading is that I think I read the Jade Peony and I was looking for more kind of stories about, about Vancouver and about the Chinese Canadian experience and put this one on my, my list because I love the idea that it was more of a feminist look at this. And yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that I read it. Um, 
yeah, I actually enjoyed this challenge because I found a book that that I really enjoyed that otherwise might have languished there for a long time. And it meant that I didn't have to read the Scott Westerfield book, which I'm absolutely not going to read. So yeah, if, if you have kind of read the JP&E and you're looking for kind of like that beautiful prose writing and that that history, um, Disappearing Moon Cafe by Sky Lee. And I'm excited to maybe pick up her second book as well. Thanks, Kareen. That is one thing about picking up something that, um, you know, is a bit older is sometimes I think you can give it the test of time. And with the Disappearing Moon Cafe, I, you know, I think it, it changed the landscape of um, Canadian writing in some way. Um, so it's nice to be able to go back and be like, yeah, this is still really uh, relevant and, and still a great book. Okay, so on to what I have chosen. Um, this was a really difficult book for me, and it's gonna. It might be tough to talk about. Um, I chose Porcupines and China Dolls uh, by Robert Arthur Alexi. Alexi is a member of the Tiddlet Witching Band in Fort McPherson, and this is a fictionalization of his experience at residential schools, uh, focusing more on adult life and the legacy of residential schools. It opens uh, with an attempted suicide and there are many attempts throughout the book. Uh, so that's certainly something to be aware of uh, if you're planning to pick it up. It's an extremely important read and it was written in 2009, um, but is still absolutely worth reading and adding to uh, any list of books that you are planning to read about residential schools. <clears throat> so the characters in this book are uh, members of the Blue People, Aboriginal group in Western Northwest Territories. Something that I thought Alexi did an amazing job of, though it's not the focus of the book, uh, he starts out by basically telling multiple generations stories and their experience with residential schools. I've done a lot of reading about residential schools, but still within like three pages, he was able to illustrate that legacy in a way that, that further helped me understand how from generation to generation with everyone in the community going to residential schools, how intergenerational trauma um, is, is created. And he just has that gift of literally in three pages, like transmitting an understanding of something in such a whole way that maybe that first person narrative just, just really does quite well. So like I said, it does focus a lot actually on the adult experience. So the main character is James. Uh, he is a survivor of the residential school system and he's an alcoholic. The book has a lot of humor in it, depending on how you look at it. Uh, it's, it's that deeply depressing reality of life humor, but he just has a way of capturing like uh, the reality of, of being drunk. Uh, the way that he describes it, it is both, you know, deeply upsetting, but he also talks about, the character talks about, oh, I time traveled 30 minutes in the future you know, because he's just sort of blacked out and, and it's, it's quite wry and, and you kind of giggle and then you kind of cry a little bit. <laughs> so in the climax of the book, members of the community 
uh, end up telling their truth about their experience at residential schools. And in particular, this book does focus on uh, sexual abuse. Uh, so again, a very difficult topic, but an important one. And in that part of the book, the author stages it as this battle. These people are warriors fighting their demons and it becomes this big colorful fantasy of them slaying demons and finding themselves and working as a as a team to destroy this um sort of looking at what telling your truth can do and how uplifting that can be however this occurs about halfway through the book and then James wakes up in the morning and has another suicide attempt. So while it is both uh, fantastical and beautiful, it also is not trying to cover the harsh realities that uh, the legacy of residential schools can't just be spoken away. It's a topic that I wanna read as much as I possibly can on, um, but for me, this one, really illustrated it in a way that is not going to leave me in understanding that that legacy. So yeah, 20, 2009, but strongly, strongly recommend that if you too are working on reading more Indigenous literature, or if you are looking for an account of residential schools and their legacy, um, this is absolutely a great place to start. Alexi is a fantastic author. That is Porcupines and China Dolls by Robert Arthur Alexi. Um, and the title actually comes from when the children go to residential school and their hair is all cut and they're all put in the same uniforms and the boys, boys look like little porcupines and the girls look like little China dolls. Ending on a little bit of a heavier note, but I do, um, I really enjoyed this challenge, even though it, uh, maybe created a sense of like foreboding, like I gotta get, what else have I got back here that I've gotta start reading? And how am I gonna do that on top of doing my top five 2021s when I don't even know if I've read five books from 2021? <laughs> there was, it's true. This, this did have a little bit of like initial foreboding, but I'm so glad. So glad that we did it. If only, as Liz said, just to get that number down from one. <laughs> it feels good. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time. Enjoy your week of reading. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.